Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you here together today. For guests uh, who maybe have not had a chance to meet you, my name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team here, and I'm really glad you're with us today. We're going to spend some time looking at Scripture. But before we do that, uh, Mitchell Yaksha is here, one of our staff members, and we have great news. He and Emily gave birth, well, she mostly gave birth, <laughs> uh, to a young little girl named Violet, a very young baby, right? Newborn, as a matter of fact, on Thursday night. So congratulations. Cool stuff. So, very cool stuff. So, congratulations. And why are you here? Go home. Go home. So, um, I want to begin my time with you this morning by reminding you of a friend that many of us had in the life of our church, uh, Roger Spurlock. Uh, he died last October, and he had quite a life, and he and I had lots of conversations along the way as uh, he had Matthew spent a lot of years in our church. He, uh, because of his softball, he, he, worked, he had lots of softball teams. He visited a lot of the places where I've lived. As a matter of fact, he um, visited both Australia and Canada in the specific places where, um, in Katoomba and in, in the Surrey area of British Columbia, where I'd lived. And um, so we often talked about his memories of those places. And those conversations were nostalgic, of course, to me, and always pleasant. And um, today, I want us to uh, do something that's a little bit unusual, and that is uh, we're going to ask his widow, Mackie, to join me here on stage. She's agreed to let us peer a little bit into her life and in the process of grief, how far she is along in that and what she's facing at present and to hear some of her story and in the process, see if we can learn something together. And so would you welcome Mackie to the stage today, please? So, Mackie, let me say, we're just so honored that you would take some time and also allow us to kind of grab a hold of a little bit of your story in the midst of it, because it's, it's still unfolding, isn't it? So, tell us, uh, first of all, how did you and Roger meet? Um, we met at New Mexico Highlands University. You need to turn it on, maybe. Well, maybe I Am I grabbing this one? Yep. Okay. You get to hold this. You get to hold this. How's that? That's fine. Is that going to work? Is it on? It's on, yeah. Just hold it okay. like it's an ice right. cream cone. And oh, it, okay. Ice cream. There you, go, there you go. Chocolate. There. So um, how did you meet? We met at New Mexico Highlands University. Um, he and I were both involved in the play Guys and Dolls. Um, he, was, um, he was a football player from West Virginia, and I was living on a cattle ranch in New Mexico. That seems odd that that would come together. Yes. <laughs> He, was, he told me the story that he was backstage and you were on stage. Yes. Um, and um, my daughter, uh, well, anyway, the story is that I was Sister Sarah Brown. And the, the stage manager had kind of wanted to see more fire in my character and had kind of dressed me down a little bit too strongly, at least in my And I was upset and crying. Went backstage and Roger was the stage manager, the stage crew guy, and he said, oh, it can't be that bad, and he gave me a stick of pepperoni and a sip of his beer. That's some play. <laughs> because in Roger's life, pepperoni is a food group, you know. Oh, that's right. So you started dating. We did. We had our first date the night that the play closed. He proposed two months later in June, and we were married two months later in August. Four months total. Four months. That's pretty brief. 
I have, I have told our children, you never, never can do this to your parents. And so when was that? That was August the 27th, 1964. And you had a long life together. We did, 51 years. And how many babies? We had four children, two girls and two boys, and four more have joined our family in marriage. Right. And we have 10 grandchildren. How fun. Well, congratulations and all of that. So I, I, having you know, been part of your life for a, a good period of time, I think the truth of the matter is we watched Roger's health decline in recent years, yes. and particularly the last year. I, it was quite obvious that his, his life was tenuous at best. Yes. yes. Um, over the last three years, he had lots of surgeries and hospitalizations and long stays in the hospital. Um, and then uh, you'd, go, you'd go to like a rehab center right. and then, then it'd be home, then back to the hospital right. and everything. And right. then the last time, you know, in the fall, it was like, okay, Roger, this is the big decision. You mm -hmm. either go home and be on dialysis mm -hmm. or there's not much we can do. Right. And how did you make that decision? Well, he made that decision. Um, we, we talked with him. Our son Ryan said, I want to talk to you, Mom. And so we talked together and Roger said, I want to go home. I, I, I do not want to have dialysis. I want to go home to our house. And so at a really precious time in the hospital, I leaned over to give him a kiss. And this cross that I always wear fell into his, like, into his vision. And he reached up, he grabbed a hold of it. And he said, it is the cross that's going to get us through. So and he was aware of what was coming and you... He, he knew. He knew what was, would happen and he also knew what was promised. Roger, Roger taught Sunday school class for 31 years. He knew God's word. He knew, he knew the promise and hope of heaven. So uh, when he died, um, you know, you took him back to the house up on, you know, north of, this, north of the church building here. And, you know, lots of us were in and out during those right. days. Um, it happened more quickly than we anticipated, it seems to me. Yes, it did, for us as well. And because, as I recall, we just more or less got a hospital bed in there thinking it's going to be weeks, and the next thing right. you know, he'd passed away overnight. Right. The hospital bed came Friday, and he passed in that night, um, Friday night. And we, we, were, we, were, we, were, we were not expecting that so mm -hmm. soon. Right. Um, and at that very point that we realized that Jesus had taken Roger's hand, um, the Holy Spirit brought a scripture to me. And um, I know it was the Holy Spirit because it, I memorized scripture um, and it was not one that I had intentionally memorized. I didn't even know where to find it in God's word. I, I knew it was one of, of Paul's writings. And, um, and the more I'm thinking about it, I was just in the pew and I'm thinking, not only did Paul write that, but Roger could have said that. Right. Oh, I think that's what's so powerful I mean, about this. The, 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 it starts this way. It's 2 Timothy 4, 5 through 6. And it says, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, there is in store for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award unto me, but not to me only, but to all those who long for his appearing. That's all of us. Amen. Amen. And, and it's true. It just kind of bubbled out from... It did. I, I was shocked to hear my voice speaking that. It was a total... I mean, it's humbling to think that the, 
as you were speaking earlier, that God of the universe would choose to reveal himself at that very moment and bring such assurance to our family, such comfort. Um, it, I don't so, have words for that. So life since then, October through April is not a very long period of time. No, no. What's it like now? Well, people ask, how, how are you doing? And that's a really good, that's a really good question because most of the time I'm doing good. Um, and um, you're a little bit conflicted. Um, and I read a book which really helped me because the man said, am I supposed to be grieving my loss or celebrating her gain or his gain? Right. And it's, a, it's both. It's grief and it is gratitude. It is both of those mixed sometime in the same moment, in the same day. Yeah. But I am determined not to spend a lot of time in a tent of tears. I know that I have been given permission to be sad, and I am sad. Um, but I am more, it's more helpful to me to think of the ways that God has moved in our circumstances, that God has moved in this church. This body of Christ was amazing, unbelievably thoughtful and kind gestures that came to our family from this church during the time of Roger's hospitalization and then after his death. I want to say thank you for that because a lot of people often think that a larger church like mm -hmm. ours can't manage these sorts of situations mm -hmm. at a personal detail level. No, no, don't ever think that because the, 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 the cards and the phone calls and the visits and the food and the food and just... <laughs> and the more and, food. And, and anyway, it, it, was, it was unbelievable. Just gestures and, and those are things that I have learned from. That's something that I have learned. So now a new chapter opens in your life that as you and I were visiting earlier in the week, you gave me this passage of scripture out of Philippians 1. You said, I'm confident of this, yes. that he who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Yes. I've loved that scripture for 38 years. It speaks so much to the work that God wants to do in us that, that that he has a plan for our lives. He has a plan for my life now. Uh, and I, my job now is to have the Holy Spirit. I have friends praying, what will my next steps be and how will I continue to grow and serve my Lord? That's my job. Tell us about um, the story you told me. Tell our, our people about the story about your grandson, his response to all of this. Well, we have a five and a half year old grandson named Sam and I get the privilege to watch him sometimes. And we were uh, at Walmart, and it's a good thing I was having a good day, because he said, now Mimi, Papa was 75 years old, right? I said, yes. He said, Grampy is 91. That's his great-grandpa. And then he paused, and he said, you don't get to choose how long you live. Wow. That was pretty powerful. Yeah, the wisdom of a five-year-old. Yes, With, yes. Can you all thank Mackie for being willing to share with us today? Thank you.
So you may be asking, why did I ask Mackie to tell that story? Well, that's because our lives are made up of stories, aren't they? Yours, your story is different than mine. Mine is different than yours. But in those stories, there are lessons, there is life. And if you have, uh, if you have um, a life, then you probably have a story. As a matter of fact, if you don't have a story, then I want to challenge you to live life a little more fully. And what we're doing right now is this sermon series is examining how the biblical story should interact with your story and to see how God's going to work in it. Because we know there's an arc to the biblical story, that there was a beginning, there was conflict and tension, and then we know there was redemption, namely the coming of Jesus Christ, which then leads, in the long run, for, all, for those who follow Christ, leads to grace and peace. So this biblical story, beginning, conflict, tension, redemption, grace and peace. And it would be my prayer that that would be your story as well, that there be, might be some conflict, some tension, perhaps, yes, along the way, but that that would be redeemed through the work of Jesus Christ in your life, and then that would be followed by grace and peace. And if that is not your experience yet today, then I pray that before, the, before our time today ends, that that would be your experience, that you would experience the redemption through the work of Jesus Christ in your story. But I'm also aware that there are um, some, well, there are some ways in which our st story lives go like this. And, and if I could, I'd like to give you a definition of success at various ages. And as we look at this, if you would see if there aren't, in fact, some, well, some storylines that go like this. For example, what's the definition of success at the age of three? Are you familiar with, with what, what the de definition of success at the age of three would be what? I'm not wearing a diaper anymore, right? That's, that's definition of success, right? That's, that's good news. You'll be praying for that, Mitchell, I promise you. Not for you, but for, for Violet, okay? A definition of success at the age of eight would be what? I can ride a bike and say, look, ma, no hands, right? Right? What's the definition of success at age 16? Taking the family car out for a solo drive. That's success, right? At age 23, ah, a little bit different. The definition of success is where you would say marriage with all of its, and I'll just call them benefits. Is that a good way to put it? All right, you all get what I'm talking about. Age 40, the definition of success would be what? Well, at age 40, I have enough money that I've, I'm taking care of my kids, my family, my stuff. Age 40, I'm going like this. At age 50, what's the definition of success? That I still have enough money because now my kids are in college <laughs> and it's more challenging, okay? Age 73, the definition of success, it would be age 73, that now I'm still married with and I can manage all the benefits of, of life, right? <laughs> Who are we kidding? I mean, that's true, right? So you're going, I can't believe the preacher's going this direction, okay? Well, hang with me, because what's the definition of success at age 80? Taking the family car out for a solo drive. <laughs> right? It's going like this, right? Because think about this. The definition of success at age 84 is being able to ride a bike and say, look, ma, no hands. Which then brings us to the definition of success at age 90 is... I'm not wearing a diaper. <laughs> you can't believe I did that, can you? But you get the idea. It's going like this. Now, that arc to that story, of course, includes a beginning of life and conception, as well as 
twists and turns and a death that we would pray somebody dies knowing Jesus Christ. And that's what Mackie's been talking about today and why she can stand here in the midst of grief and, well, you could say that this way, the arc and the story of her life with Roger leading all the way to his death now leads to a new chapter with her that starts with one word, namely grief. That's the new chapter that she's writing. And so with that all in mind, let me ask you this. How do we grieve? What's the best way to do that? And for that matter, should, should Christians grieve at all? After all, if the, if the, if the life of our, if, the, if you will, the, the pattern of our story is to get to the point where we die and we spend all of eternity with God in heaven, and that's all good stuff, there's the grace and peace and everything is redeemed, then if somebody dies knowing Jesus and they're there, why are we back here grieving? Isn't that a reasonable question? And yet, on the other hand, although that's a great end to the story, why do we mourn? And should we mourn? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about that, surprisingly. It honestly reports how life's journeys include pathways of sorrow and struggle, intermingled with delights of great rejoicing and laughter. Within our culture, we do death and grief one way. And in, in the culture of the Bible, in the ancient world, it's significantly different than what we do it. The Bible points to um, people grieving this way both at the loss of somebody, you know, when somebody died, or just the loss of a career, the loss of a dream, whatever. The, when it comes to loss, the Bible talks about how people would go outside and they would literally lay down in the ashes of a fire and they would throw dust on themselves, throw those cold ashes on, their, on themselves and put them on their head and they would then walk around with those ashes on their bodies so people wouldn't know they were grieving. Why would they do that? Well, you have to be reminded of the ancient military practice that when an invading army overtook another city, the way in which they declared that they had won the city is they burned that city to the ground. And so thus, ashes represented destruction, the loss of human life, it, in, it was a case where grief was coming into the story of the life of that city. And thus, ashes were represented with the real picture of human, human mortality. Now, again, we have different habits when it comes to us. We're not going to go out and wallow, if you will, in the black embers of a cold fire. But regardless of not doing that, we still have twists and turns to our lives that bring us grief. And we still are faced with the question, should Christians grieve? Well, the answer to that is yes. I'll tell it to you straight up, yes, because Jesus said to grieve. Jesus told his followers to grieve in moments of sadness, not just in a death situation, but to actually grieve in moments of sadness. And in the midst of that, he also demonstrated his grief. It all comes up in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is um, one of the biographies that tells us of Jesus' life. And it's called his Sermon on the, Mount, on the Mount. It's his first major address at the beginning of his ministry. Some have called it his operation manual, if you will, his grand scheme, his Magna Carta, his kingdom vision. Regardless of what you call it, if you want to know about Jesus Christ, then you need to take a look at the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, it goes through a couple chapters. And in this Sermon on the Mount, where he has gone from a private individual with nobody knowing him, he steps out onto the, the stage, if you will, of the people of Galilee, and he gives this first major address, his first public statement saying, I've got a new vision. And what's fascinating about that, that is that at the very beginning of his address, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, 
he immediately starts off with talking about grief. It's a very brief moment, yet the fact that it's at the beginning of his comments points out its importance. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Think about what's going on here. This is the startup. This is the warm-up, if you will, to his remarks. This is the very first thing. He comes out and says, blessed are the, are the poor in spirit, for they'll see God's kingdom, and then immediately launches into what's, what's on his mind. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. I, I, it's, this was new insight to me as I was working with this passage this week. That right at the beginning of his career-beginning message, Jesus brings up grieving. Why is that? Why not let it tail off at the back end? Or if it's something or other within Jesus' life and ministry says, I'm going to deal with this at the very beginning. In other words, when sadness occurs, in the midst of loss, when maybe death visits your family or a friendship circle, when life just doesn't go the way you had hoped it to and your kids are not doing what you'd hoped, or whatever, when there's something that's not going well, he states, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll, be, they'll experience comfort. Think about this. This is God incarnate, God in the flesh, the very creator of the cosmos and humans, the one who understands the human psyche better than what humans can explain. Jesus is saying, if you face loss, if you face death, grieve, mourn, because then the God of comfort will show up. I would say the opposite is also true. If you face loss and you do not mourn, then God's comfort will not be found. I wonder at times how many visits to counselor's offices, how many visits to psychiatrist's couches, how many prescriptions for emotional distress medicines have been dispensed because we haven't followed Jesus' instructions in this regard. Because if you think about it, when somebody steps into a counselor's office, into a, into a psychiatrist's office, whatever, they're ste stepping in, they say, I've got this situation in my life that I haven't figured out. And it's, they're holding onto it tightly. And if the counseling goes well, often tears come. They come quietly sometimes. Sometimes they come with violent sobs. But mourning takes place. The loss is expressed. And if that moves along well, if the counseling goes well, the pain begins to subside. Now, hear me, friends, I'm not pushing some sort of pie-in-the-sky approach that, man, you, if you just cry a few tears, everything will be all right. No, that's not, the, that's not the point. But Jesus did say to, to mourn, and in the process of mourning, the comfort of God will be there. I was visiting with a friend about this earlier this week. Uh, he's a pastor out in Colorado, serves a church similar to ours out there. For most of his career, he's 61 years of age, um, for most of his career, he'd worked in the Dallas area in, in um, an organization there and had done very well and had, a couple years ago, had no intent of leaving Dallas. His family was there, his grandkids were there. He and his wife had a lovely circle of friends. He had a very prominent position in the Christian pastoral world where, you know, he it was kind of like at the apex of his career, everything's going good, and he got approached by this church in Colorado where he come out and work with us, and he really wasn't interested. But over a period of time, finally came to the place, okay, we'll leave, he, he and his wife Debbie said, we'll leave our home in here in Dallas, we'll leave our grandkids and kids behind, and we'll go and we'll take a stab at this situation in Colorado. So can you imagine, after decades, three decades or more of living in one city, they uprooted everything, off they went to Colorado. They got there, they couldn't find a house at first. 
So they lived in a rented, rented space for a while. Then they finally found a house, bought it, moved in, and two months later, she died of a brain aneurysm all in one day. Think about this, what this man faced in November of 2014. His family is far away. His life, his circle of friends. He's been in town less than six months, and he's just moved into the house, and his wife died like that. No warning. Talk about loss. Talk about being uprooted. And as he and I were talking about that this week, I was across the table from him. I said, how are you doing? He said, well, the grief process has been incredibly intense, and it's still going on. He said, I realized in November of last year, so she died, Debbie died in November of 2014, November of 2015. He says, I realized last year that God was working on me. He said, because I had been holding on so tightly to everything that had gone badly that God really couldn't get in there. But suddenly I began to see that, you know, as I grieved and as I, if I let God be in charge, slowly that closed fist could be pried open. And if I, I still do this, he said, I still do this, but I'm getting to go here. Debbie's loss is still, I mean, my life is completely different as a result of her death but I'm no longer holding on like this. You know, this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are those who mourn because they'll be comforted. He demonstrated it. We have another story in the Gospels where he's uh, about to go to a town where one of his best friends lives. The guy's name was, was Lazarus. And some four days before he got there, Lazarus died. And when Jesus got to the town, you know, there's no emails, no phones. He gets there and learns that Lazarus has died. And it's interesting to me what happens and how it happens and how it's described in Scripture. I think it's no mistake that Scripture has uh, Jesus arriving at the scene and in two words, it's the only two-word sentence in Scripture. Do you know what it is? Jesus wept. Now think about this. If you were going to create right scripture and if God was going to have his hand all over it and it was going to be, okay, there's the shortest sentence that I want kids to learn and have fun with when they're in, when they're in Sunday school is you know, a two-word sentence. It would be God loves or Jesus died or something or other. No, what's with the shortest sentence that there is in scripture with the most poignant moment is Jesus wept. Huh. What's that say? Throughout my pastoral ministry, I've been engaged in the hundreds of stories of people's lives in settings where I've seen this in play. Two words. People weep. People weep. Sometimes the loss is unrelated to someone else's death. Perhaps it's while sitting across from my desk and while listening to this story or that, people start to mourn. And they've been holding so tightly that it's really as they begin to unpack that God does this. Sometimes the morning is about the death of someone else. And by the way, I want to just say this. We haven't time this morning to explore all the ways that people mourn. And I by no means want to leave you with the sense that crying is, on, is the only way to mourn. Crying, frank, frankly, friends, is only one possible aspect of grief and perhaps not even one that everyone experiences. So I don't want to suggest that tears are the answer to this. I'm not suggesting that in any way. But here's the truth. As I've seen those tears flow in the lives of... Uh, down the cheeks of people across the desk from me at work. I rarely, in those moments, 
have great pastoral insight or wisdom to know how to advise people. I'm quite clear about that. I can point people to biblical truths. I can say these are some patterns that you see in Scripture to move forward. I've come to this understanding. The title pastor, in my name, if you will, Pastor Wayne, I've come to this clear, clear truth. Pastor does not automatically denote great wisdom. You didn't have to laugh quite so quickly, but nonetheless. But it does say, I'll listen and I will care. And what amazes me in those moments is the, just this profound way that God's Holy Spirit shows up and provides comfort. And, and all I do is I sit there and I'm quiet. And now and then we'll ask a few stories. And we'll come to us, you know, this, if you will, our time will be done with. And they'll stand up and I'll shake their hand, give them a hug, whatever. And they'll go out and say, Wayne, you are such the greatest pastor. You've helped me so much. And I go, I did nothing. I really didn't. Why? Because God in his comfort shows up. And it's not about what I say, but it's about this process of being transparent before God. Because here's what I want you to experience today. I want you to experience going from this about that matter that has brought you loss to this, where the Son of God, the creator of all humans, he knows of your need for comfort. That's why he talked about it, right at the beginning of his ministry. And I'd suggest you step into it. And so to that end, I'm inviting you to stand together, please. And I want to pray for you. I want to pray for each of us in this room. I want to pray for those of you who are watching via or listening via the internet right now. Because I'm quite aware that all of us have some sense of loss over some matter within our lives. And I, I, I would like to pray that God would enable us to open up to his comfort. Would you pray with me, please? Our God in heaven, thank you for the gift of your word. You, the way in which scripture tells us what you have in mind for us. And Lord, I'm so thankful that Jesus told us to go ahead and grieve. And so, Lord, there are people here in this room today who need to do that. And they've held so tightly to a situation that there is no way that you've been able to get in there. I pray, God, that you would enable them to mourn. And in the morning, may they receive your comfort. I'm so glad that Jesus said he was sending the comforter, your Holy Spirit, to live with us and live within us when he went to heaven. And so, Lord, the Holy Spirit lives within us. It's the comfort of God. I pray that your comfort would be like a soothing balm that is poured over us, like a warm liquid that f f moves into every crevice of our lives. Lord, I thank you that Revelation 21 says there's a day coming when you will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no more crying, no more death, no more pain. We're, we're anxious for that. We're anxious for that chapter of the story to be written. But for today, God, provide your comfort for us. May we know again of your great life within us. We want to be alive within you with, as we walk our way through the events of this week. Call us, Lord, to walk with you. For those, Lord, who are here today, maybe not, aren't doing that yet. Enable them to simply ask that you would engage in their lives and forgive them of sin and be involved in what they're doing. May you, Lord, pour all that sweet stuff of your life over us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.